This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. This is Joris Peels, and uh, I'm here today with Maxwell Vogue, and this is 3D Pod. And today we have a very special guest, that's Yanni Kitana. Uh, Yanni is, is one of the very first designers to engage with 3D printing in any kind of meaningful way. And he's the first guy to really commercialize uh, design products with 3D printing, to so really make usable end-use products with 3D printing. And he started uh, at MGX, becoming the real force behind MGX, which is the first real 3D printing design label. And he sold 10,000 of his own lamps, and uh, really uh, iconic designs such as Lily and others. And later on, uh, after he left MGX Materialize, he went to FOC, or Freedom of Creation, and there they made the first uh, iPhone cases, the first kind of textile experiments and kind of textile-like materials, uh, 3D printing. After uh, FOC was acquired by 3D Systems, he ended up being the creative director of uh, 3D Systems. And lately, he's been working on things like ice cream with PicSuite, and he's been uh, doing things like a venture capital uh, with his firm. So, hey, Jan is a great mind and a really incredible designer, and uh, he's a real inspiration to me, and I hope uh, we get to, to have a good conversation with him today. Okay, Jorit, thanks. Uh, thank you for the nice uh, introduction, of course. Uh, more or less correct. So, yeah, I'd love to, uh, love to share uh, more about the past and, uh, and, of course, more about the future as well. But... What uh, what what we have uh, going on? So uh, thanks uh, for for everybody uh, joining the joining the bot podcast and let's make it meaningful for everybody. All right. So Jana, so when did you get started with three D printing for the first time? Um, it was somewhere in the middle of the nineties. I saw it at the fair one day, and it was a very special moment, you know, because when you have certain certain things in your life, uh, I see I have a you know I have several visions in my life, uh, you know, from various uh, various things and you know what has happened. So so when I saw the technology for the first time. It was kind of a lightning uh, striking your head. I'm like, whoa, that shit is gonna, you know, <laughs> change everything. <laughs> and uh, and that was kind of kind of the moment where I also kind of decided really at that time, like, you know, why why would I go back in the workshop and start bending metal and cutting uh, wood and, and and whatever when I can just sit on my couch and make these 3D files and fire them fire them up into into these magical uh, machines and and off I go. So it was a very clear vision already at that time, like you know where where the technology was going to go and how I would be uh, playing some sort of a part part of it uh, in the future. For me, definitely, it was the same thing. I mean, there was like this: there's a life, my life before 3D printing, and I could never go back to it, and I could never leave this industry. To me, there's like I don't understand the people that aren't involved with this, you know. So, uh, uh, and and what did you first make with 3D printing? What were your first like engagements with actually designing things, actually making things? Also, a very, very, very good question. I mean, then I started making things only during my studies. I was in, um, uh, studying uh, industrial design, uh, but we didn't have any computers uh, at that time. So I was the only person with a computer in, in my class. And um, it was a funny moment because I, I remember I started making these small objects. And I one of the very first things that I made was this hanger that put on, uh, I put on a door. And I was telling this uh, professor at the time, it was probably 97 or something like that. And I told him, like, listen, in the future, we will be able to calculate the uh, the forces that are going to be uh, required for this 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 specific uh, object to to hold let's say a jacket for example so we will know exactly how much material we are going to be uh, using and how much material we could we could save in order you know before we start injection molding these things for example in masses and it was a funny dialogue i really really uh, vividly remember that because he's he literally just bluntly told me no you, you can't 
like, what, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? Of course you can. It's it's math. I mean, you will know exactly how much uh, force you need to pull a certain material, be able to calculate how much uh, material is required to do that. I mean, this is just basic math. And they're getting the response, well, no, you can't. You have to always make product. I'm like, no, we can virtually make these things. We can uh, simulate it. And only after that, we have to make it. And it was a kind of a dead silence afterwards. And, and I had I had struggled on um, finishing my studies because they're, you know, we have we were on a complete different path, you know. So, so I, I was kind of teaching myself and then then doing the curriculum because I also wanted to have a degree. And I'm like, you know, I'm fine to do this study, but at the same time, I'm teaching myself with the technologies that we don't have at school. Your university didn't have a, a printer at all. Back. No, I mean we're looking at '96, '97. Obviously, nobody had, so we didn't even have a computer. So it's kind of like uh, pens and paper and and whatever you know, matchsticks. You don't understand how you didn't have a computer in '96, '97. Well, I mean there 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 was a you know like a, a computer room, you know, but we were not using that in our industrial design studies at that time, you know. So it was kind mm-hmm. of like you know maybe we use it in a once a month, but I'm like, well, why why would I not use a computer? And the funny thing is, I have. You know, a couple of things that I remember from my studies, and this was one of the, again, like uh, I vividly remember this uh, this moment as well, because the very same professor told me that, um, quote, that thing, computer, will kill your creativity. I repeat, <laughs> that thing, the computer, will kill your creativity. And you know, at least that response, professor got got. You know, he's totally right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right, yeah, no so, one does anything creative with a computer these days. <laughs> so, you, you know how you know how I responded. Yeah. I said, and yes, you're you're going to be so unemployed, and that didn't go down well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how, and, when and, did you learn how to three D model then? Very early, you know, when I'm, you know, 14, 15 years old, because when I was, um, and, and, you know, really thanks to my older brother, he was uh, very early on in the computing as well. So when I was six years old, my, my parents, I mean, my dad bought us a computer, so I did, started programming at the same time as you're kind of learning to uh, read and write. So it was a very pivotal moment as well to how to get technology into your into your kind of a forehead from, from very early on. And then my brother, when he was like 15, 16, he started getting to uh, 3D modeling. But just kind of like you know, modeling modeling things for graphical uh, purposes. And I was uh, looking, I was looking over the shoulder um, uh, from what he was doing. And then fast forward that many years, I took those skills and I went to um, more in the the creation of products uh, avenue. And he went more in the graphical uh, avenue. But you know, still using very similar tools. And that was also the reason why I went uh, to uh, to the product design field, not from a CAD perspective, like you know, using parametric software and stuff like that. No, I went there from a 3D animation in a visual effect perspective, you know, so you're kind of using these preform modeling tools already at the time. And then 3D printer uh, kind of landed on my lap and I connected those two so that I never, any of the designs that I made, nothing was made from parametric, uh, uh, you know, uh, tools, you know, I had this kind of a radius and that kind of fillet. And no, it's just completely freeform uh, from, uh, from day one. Were you using like 3D Studio Max, for example, as like the software tools yeah, Studio, initially? Yeah, I used a whole bunch of different kinds of tools, but Studio Max was one of the ones that I really kind of honed on, and that's still still today. I mean, it's still the main tool that I use. You still use it for your 3D printing stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, do you find it difficult to convert those models sometimes into a 
into an STL or I mean I know no, you're not, using lots of different printers, but no, not at all. I mean it's uh, everything's watertight. I mean when you model it, so I mean it's just just modeling very clean, you know, subdividable models. You know, so they're perfect for printing. Do you think that the use the use max does it make you more? Yeah, you said you mentioned it a bit free form. Do you think it made you less inhibited? It made you your shapes much more organic and freer than if you were to use CAD. Yeah, definitely. But also because I, I never had any injection molding experience either. You know, I had no mechanical engineering, uh, you know, experience and, and none of that, you know, pro engineer SolidWorks uh, world uh, was completely not known to me. You know, so I'm like, when you don't have that knowledge at all, then you, you tend to looking looking at the world from a complete naive, noble perspective. And the mm -hmm. only question you have, like, well, why not? <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> and, and, and there you go. Uh, do you think that's also different? Because now a lot of designers specifically are using like Grasshopper, so that's Rhino Grasshopper plugins. Do you yeah. think that also affects them? Because I've been noticing a lot of their work seems very similar. Yeah, of, of course. I mean, the tools, of course. You know, whatever you have in your in your fingertips, they they pretty much di dictate uh, how how those forms that will come out, and and that's also kind of the the, the sign of times that mm -hmm. you know everybody will start kind of automatic automatically creating certain shapes because it's it's the easiest way to uh, to do it and then of course i mean if you look at look at today's world i mean the new generation of 3d designers they kind of everybody's making the same kind of things because you know you have a certain software that generates a certain thing it's mm -hmm. very hard for somebody to you know make your own software make your own code in order to come up with something something completely different so for yeah. me it was just kind of like this being a in the right place at the right time with the right kind of tools and the right you know and the wrong kind of background you know because I'm told by people in the industry actually that, that your brother is like one of the top 3D rendering guys worldwide. So he does like really super high-end renderings like car companies and fashion companies and things like that. Yeah, he's uh, he's super, super talented, super good. I mean, you can check his website. Uh, so if it just instead of uh, Jan Nekitanen, it's uh, Yasekitanen, so SS. You can check mm -hmm. out his work and, you know, super hyper-realistic, amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah. So that was like the moment he got involved in 3D really bit, you know, made a really big impact on your household as a whole and both your lives. Yeah, no, I did. I mean, we, we were both, I mean, uh, kind of at the same time, you know, working with very, very similar, similar tools and, and having also an entrepreneurial parents. I mean, so we, we both, uh, neither, neither of us had any, had any normal jobs, you know, so we just started doing our own businesses and, and my mom was, uh, you know, a fashion designer as well. And my dad is an accountant. So you kind of get, the business and uh, the style and the design uh, coming from uh, and, and the technology from from your family, so it's kind of like a mm -hmm. little bit of an inbreeding uh, <laughs> in exercise. Uh, did you ever have you ever done a project with your brother or not at all? Well, in the beginning we did, but you know, of course, we uh, we went in different uh, diff different ways, and you know, you just have different interests. You know, I'm not I'm not too interested in um, in the hyper hyper realistic world uh, when it comes down to. I mean, in the beginning, of course, but. So the more further I go, I'm, I'm more interested in, in designing organizations and, and strategies and, and stuff like that. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying that design is not uh, not interesting anymore, but it's uh, it, it's such a small part of the, of the things that we're doing, you know. So we're I'm looking mm -hmm. at you know very large scale you know infrastructures and stuff like that, and, and mm -hmm. obviously, and then how how does design play a role in it? Obviously, obviously it does. But for me, that's kind of like the five minute uh, part of the whole uh, whole engagement. So okay, so a little bit looping back a little bit to where, so you, what was your first 3D printed product or your first 3D printed thing? Do you remember it all or? Well, it was that hanger that I made for yeah. for a door. So that was the very first thing, and then then from from there I went to uh, immediately I went to interior products and went to lighting, uh, and that was also the moment when I went to I'm like okay, 
the question was, okay, I want to make some lighting products, that, but, but who am I going to go uh, to make these things with? And I found this company called Materialize at the time. And uh, I just just approached them. And then, then that dialogue, uh, you know, scaled up all the way to the CEO. And then uh, that whole, I organized a few uh, few projects with them. And uh, there was a lot of interest in that company to uh, to then uh, look at the world beyond prototyping like okay how are we going to make uh, final products out of these things and they sponsored also my graduation uh, project and that was year 1999 and 2000 and then it took me a little while to kind of put one thing to uh, to to uh, together and then i believe it was 2001 or 2002 then we started this collaboration as a pilot uh, project like okay hey, let's see what um, what we could do and then that whole endeavor uh, then became uh, I, I came up with that name MGX and the whole point was like I was trying to tell you know sell them a story of you know you can um, what if in the future every file in the world uh, would have a dot MGX behind them and you know you would have a lot of power in the software world to, uh, to you know kind of spread your uh, spread your brand all over the place and then also the whole point was that okay we're gonna have this uh, virtual vault of these products, you know, so if somebody wants to make a uh, replacement part of these things in the future, then you would kind of become that vault uh, type of company uh, for it, which is actually funny now that I have a lot of, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of people uh, reach out to me like, hey, I, you know, I got your lights uh, 15 years ago and now this bidding or whatever broke to still have that file. And I'm just sending that I'm just sending this and uh, funny enough I mean, that it, it has happened exactly the way that we imagined. And uh, hey, now my leaves are broke from my piece. Can you please how how can I glue it together? I'm like, no, don't do it. I'll send you the file. And uh, and there we go. You know, so funny I feel to like see you should how just the world. Thingiverse. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's I'm just the, teasing. Uh, I'm just well, teasing. no, no, no. I I would love to, but that's the the irony of this whole thing is that you know I uh, would I put it. I mean, when we sold our company to uh, to 3D Systems, I mean, of course, my my view has always been to to share my data free uh, for people as quick as possible but when your data is owned by public right. company then it's a little bit harder to do that and sadly none of my content is out there and I would love it to be on thing it works but it is not my decision but I would love it to just give a you know whatever FTP link to whoever go download whatever you want because fundamentally I mean the I've always looked at these things with a, with a little bit of a bigger lens you know the more the more I would be able to inspire and give my data to people, the more it would actually then feed the entire industry and everybody would benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, it's like the same thing. Let's say the dude who uh, came up with the internet. Imagine if you if you would have gone like, listen, uh, every web page under the, under the sun, uh, I want to have a royalty uh, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, well, then we would not have internet and then the economy wouldn't boost, you know, so. That's it. When you're too self-centered and thinking, thinking, you know, for yourself, then, then nothing grows. But I think, and what, and and do you think that, you know, now we do see, like, in the desktop world, we see a lot of like open source and open source thinking, whereas the no, like, kind of the more additive manufacturing industrial world seems to be very much kind of, you know, closed off and IP regulated and stuff. Do you think one of these these worlds are going to collide with each other? They're going to coexist? Um, yeah, to a, to a certain extent, yes. But you know, change the culture from from big corporations who benefit from uh, from IP and patents and and they make money on that. I mean, of course, every new invention. Uh, I don't see that kind of the patent office uh, 
disappearing anytime soon. But what is happening, of course, is that all these inventions are becoming obsolete uh, quicker, um, quicker all the time. And you know, every every day you you create new and new things. You know, so so I don't. The answer would be I don't really know. And and I used to say that I know how the future is going to unfold. And then today mm-hmm. I would say that I know less and less. Uh, it is becoming a little bit. My last couple of years seem to be really along a certain path. You know, we all knew we were going to get better systems, better desktop systems, more industrial production, and volumes were going to increase, and that the shapes and the sizes were going to increase as well. But then beyond that, I'm also a little bit hazy as to what would be, you know, what, what's actually going to happen as well. And uh, it's funny, funny that you mentioned that because I was just reading a, a, a dropped in my inbox yesterday. It was a report on how many jobs there are in the 3d printing uh, uh, field at this at, at this point uh, you know what's what's the percentage of certain jobs being there like okay it was like 20 percent production uh, you know jobs available 25 percent was engineering but there were no creative jobs you know no. which is funny you know so it's like where's the how many um, creative directors are you looking for how many creative strategies are you looking for nobody so it's basically yeah. where where we are now is is, is mainly just about the making Still, I mean, I see ninety percent still is just prototypes, you know. So it's just about making things, and less about thinking and less about strategizing. And and I I really see that the future is going to be more hybrid, and of course, three D printing will will play a play a part in it, but you know, a very very small part. And the new businesses and new new ideas are going to be a, you know clusters of uh, new technologies just blending together in an interesting way. Uh, and and then all of a sudden you have a completely new categories of products are coming in the market, but the 3D printing is purely just the enabler in it. And I just hope mm-hmm. that a lot of these companies would start to kind of wake up and start realizing that their business models uh, would need to be updated, you know, so you're not you're not going to be making money anymore with the razor and the blades model like it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you have to become, you know, creative hubs and, and, and thinkers uh, and strategists and, and, you know, connectors of the weirdest dots in order to come with the new uh, new business models. And do you think that that's it's just a question of products being introduced more quickly and barriers to entry eroding because of 3D printing, for example, and other technologies? Is it just a question of barriers to entry or is there more going on? You know, every single segment will grow. I mean, the industrial sector will grow. The home market will grow. The the pro uh, user, uh, the designer. I mean, everybody. I mean, it's it's keep keeps on going. Uh, but my my interest personally is is somewhere else. You know, so it's not not just trying to make the horse run a little bit faster, but but kind of like you know maybe making a sea lion. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Why, why do you think you're, you know, because it sounds you were used to be very practical. Let's figure out how to make a lamp that actually works with 3D printing. Yeah. And now you're getting very, very abstract. And, and do you know why that is? Or That's a good question. I mean, I think it's a, it's a very general uh, progression of any human being. I mean, you're, you, you, you get fascinated by the details. And that's kind of my, my question when I started was, hey, what can I do with it? Um, and that's, you know, people who come into this game... Um, later as well i mean it, it seems to be the same kind of question hey what can i do with it i mean if i look at a lot of the majority of my linkedin feed is uh, uh is videos of engineers uh, squeezing uh tpu uh lattice structures and and, and, and whatever because they're fascinated with what the machine did but you know but if you my my question today is more about you know how how do you add value to the entire value chain so it's, it's a completely different perspective you know so if i'm if i'm going to make that lattice ball uh, TPU uh, lattice structure uh, video okay what how does it 
make money and to who and what are those applications and how are you going to distribute mm-hmm. it, how are you going to store it, how are you going to finance it, who's going to buy it, who is the who's the agent, who, in what country you're going to sell them at, whatever, you know. So, but when you start, you obviously you just get tangled by those little engineering details, and mm-hmm. and again, the majority of these companies in this field are started by engineers, you know, so that is their passion. But if you want to grow as a human being and add value in different different parts into this whole whole chain, then you have to kind of step out and and, and start looking at the world, you know, a little bit from a from a, from a bigger bigger broader lens. Cool, cool. And then and so why? So you now you're doing a little bit of like consulting type of stuff as well, right? Well, basically um, we're we we doing we're doing two things, you know. So we're um, we are an investment fund, but we're. The way that we, I'm also kind of trying trying to transform the VC world, you know. So we're not blind investors for you know other people's ideas. We're primarily there to fund our own ideas. So we invest into our own startups and we create them from a, from a scratch. But imagine, let's say I'm I'm creating a, creating a hardware product, and I see an interesting software company that adds value to the hardware that we're building, or it's an interesting uh, material company, then we might invest into those companies and start building a family of. Uh, a kind of an e- ecosystem uh, together, so mm-hmm. we don't just blindly in, in, in invest in a sort of a weird ideas that don't add value into into a bigger picture. So that is one. So we design startups in combination of financing it ourselves and financing other parties and coming together. And the second part is consulting, but again consulting in a way that I I consult for companies who then add value into that same ecosystem. So it's not just a hey blind uh, <laughs> tell me with what 3D printer to buy. And here's a consulting yeah. gig. No, not really interesting. It's more like, hey, yeah, we're uh, we're trying to create this new kind of product. Can you help us out? And I'm like, okay, I will help you out because the end result will actually add value into this entire ecosystem that we're building, and we might even invest into it at the same time. So it's, again, it's a different it's okay. a different type of consulting. It's not like a one off uh, one off deal, but more mm-hmm. just looking at it holistically. And so the most obvious one has been PicSuite, right? Which is you essentially coming up with like a mold making technology or, or technology to yeah make ice creams and other shapes like that, right? Yeah. So let me let me run you through it a little bit how it works and why why it is extremely interesting. Mainly that the starting point is the frustration for me uh, in the three D three uh, D printing world on how to make something that scales. Uh, and and with scale, I don't mean mean making a you know selling. 20,000 lights uh, worth $500. No, I'm more talking about products that you can make hundreds of millions uh, of, of products per year in less than a second and still being able to make custom products. So what it does from a technical uh, perspective, it, it brings a lot of different technologies together into the same platform. So there's an element of robotics, there's an element of uh, thermoforming, an element of uh, food packing, uh, plastic film development technology and 3D printing. And they all come together into one hardware, which is currently about three and a half meter long, long system. So what we do is we um, we 3D print molds, and then we have uh, two molds, and then we have two films that come together at a certain point, and we explode air between these two films, and the 3D printed mold will catch the the shape of like a hundred micron film, and at the same time we will inject a substance into uh, into this film. So basically, what fundamentally what you end up is that a, a very, very thin uh, representation of a, of a mold, and inside that is a three-dimensional product. And and the consumer is left with actually opening the mold. So in a way, the consumer gets the disposable mold at the same time as a consumer product. 
so and that's how we, we we can streamline the production of uh, of uh, consumer products to begin with already kind of produced inside their own packaging so it's almost like a blow mold Essentially, I mean, you know, kind of yes. Imagine, imagine a blow mold, but at the same time, as you're blow molding that product, you inject whatever substance uh, you want to put in it. But the films are thin enough that they keep their shape, but they're uh, sorry, so thick enough thick to keep their shape, but thin enough so you can just consumer can peel them open. So that gives us a tremendous <laughs> uh, uh, options on materials because basically anything you can buy from Walmart, we can. We can inject in 3D, and and then you don't have to go through that mumbo jumbo of trying to squeeze a thermoplastic or whatever through a very very tiny nozzle, and then you have to spend all that time trying to develop those materials, and then your applications uh, are still very limited because your pricing is very high and your speed is uh, non-existent. So I see all these you know companies coming into the game uh, who claim that you know we've got the fastest uh, DLP uh, uh, you know photopolymer uh, printer and we can make we can make products in minutes and I'm like well it's just not good enough we're making product in 0.1 seconds and then you start getting into scalable speeds and, and very affordable prices for, um, for, for for consumer products so kind of we're we're at this stage now where we're able to hit very similar margins as you would buy just normal chocolate from a, from, a, from a Walmart we can do the same thing but now we can make any shape you like how do you solve the, the software problem uh, which part? You mean making the molds? Yeah, making. Not make. Are you allowing the consumer to make the shape for the mold? Yeah, you you can. But again, that's also we're looking at this uh, from a from a business perspective, yeah. from a different different angle. So most companies or most individuals who again come to the 3D uh, 3D printing world, they look at it from like, hey, wait, I can start making these custom uh, products, small runs, and they all start their own jewelry company and they sell the right. one ring. You know, and I'm like, okay, but how are you going to now make million? Of custom rings, you know the scalability is uh, tremendously hard for, for most of these uh, most of these applications. So we do it the other way around. So we start from scale. So we make a custom run of hundred thousand products, or fifty thousand, or a thousand, or five thousand, or ten thousand, and then slowly start moving towards. Okay, now this kid is going to have his birthday, and uh, now we can make ten uh, ten custom uh, ice creams or chocolates or whatever of the of, of her head. Whatever that might be, whatever that, that might be. But uh, we've done this entire journey now and understanding like we still have handling uh, issues and packaging and logistics and all this kind of you know stuff and making molds and whatever. So so we've determined that it's um, it's better to first start with scale. And then once we have the scale, uh, then we can all, always move back into making. Then we can make 100 and we can make a 10 and maybe maybe one day we can make one, but we're not there yet. So we're more still in the custom. We're bridging basically the the, the the difference between 3D printing and injection molding or other mass manufacturing techniques. So we can hit right that middle where 3D printing can go and, and injection molding can't go either. It sounds like you're talking crazy. You're talking about making money and being profitable. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's, it's crazy, yeah. Right? It's, it's, taken, it's taken 20 years of learning, like, okay, wait a minute. How does this whole shit work? You know, How, right. how are we going to make this uh, work? And, and I'm really passionate about the, the 3D space. But again, when you're looking at, looking at the world very linear, then you're always going to be trying to extrude a... a uh, golf ball out of a FDM uh, nozzle, you know, I'm like, God, it's, it's not going to work, you know, we have to get get clever here, and, and to, um, so it's a, you know, if you look at Invisalign, what Align Tech has done, I'm a very, right. very big fan of that product, 
So it's a very similar approach as what we're doing. We're using 3D printing as just a mere tool, as an enabler for scale. And they're doing the same thing, but they, they're doing it for one-offs. We're doing the same thing, but now with kind of any material, but in the volumes of 5,000, 10,000, 50,000, whatever unit you want to, you, you name it. That's, that's very exciting to me because I think time and time again, you see people trying to make like the universal kind of mass customization uh, manufacturing software tool or process. And time and time again, that takes in too much money or too long. I've been involved in certain things where we were taking months to de develop these mass customization tools and only to find out the product wasn't there yeah, exactly. or the inter interface wasn't the, yeah, part of the right kinda, one. You're kind of climbing up the ass first in the tree. Yep. You know? yep. And I see the, I mean, like foodware is a good example. I mean, I wrote a Forbes article about this also, you know, a couple of months ago. And, you know, everybody's trying to make these custom things and 3D printing and all that. But it is not, that is not the problem. The problem is that you're, you have an archaic system and, and, you know, these guys are still using the last the way, same way as they did 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whatever you would be able to 3D paint, but you're not being able to change the, the way that they're manufacturing shoes to begin with. So then, in a way, you're just trying to fix one little tiny part of the process, which then, you know, results you to actually changing nothing. So you have to dramatic, you have to dramatically change everything if you want to, if you want to, you know, have an have an impact the reason why we started with frozen confections which for for some might be like a, just a weird funny uh strange uh, category why would you ever do that and that's also precisely the point because nobody right. ever did and there's uh <laughs> so and if you look at the product like ice cream I mean, everybody knows ice cream uh and if you're able to make that custom for every theme park, every movie uh, Disney is making, or every baseball uh, mascot or whatever, then all of a sudden you have you know a tremendous scale in a category that everybody knows. And just to give you some idea of math, you know, so if if these companies were to change a shape of a frozen confection product, the novelty, uh, it's going to cost them about a hundred thousand dollars in tooling, because the way that those technologies are made. So we've done it. Com Completely in a different way. They also make things vertically. And you, if you look at a vertical mold, like you know, if, if you look at how a popsicle looks like, it's a vertical kind of a cylinder with a little draft in it. You're very very limited to what kind of shapes you even able to do in order for that to release in the mold. So what we've done is that we've literally just completely revamped the the way that ice creams are made, and we're making things horizontal and in a completely different kind of way and different system. And then all of a sudden you come into this tremendous opportunity of uh, being able to make anything you like. So cool. do you, you just see this as a stepping stone in, into a larger process, basically? Correct. I mean, it yeah. is just a, for us, it's a, it's a proof of market, proof right. of technology, proof of margins, proof of how to build factories. So we built two factories now and, and also trying to see you know, how does regulations work and, and, and how do you, where do the people walk in? How does a, I was an entire workflow working a factory a layout during during the day. So it's a so it's more about just trying to look at like building these uh, these factories from from ground up. And now we kind of we've done one category, and now we're moving into all these different categories. But if you want to run a chocolate factory, then you have a totally different workflow. You know how does how does a 3D chocolate come out? Where where did the boxes go? Where, where where how did they stack it? How long will it have to dry? How does it you know what's the temperature? You know what what color jackets do people wear <laughs> in a factory? So you you got to go through every single category separately. But that's kind of what what we're on about. We're looking at every single gel paste liquid type of process, um, which is outdated, and then the companies haven't been able to make anything custom. And what what are the ones you're most excited about for right now? 
I can't, unfortunately, can't tell you, but uh, there are some medical applications which are extremely interesting, um, and a lot of other things in the consumer consumer product sectors. I think you will you'll be hearing more during during this year. But I'm uh, very sure, excited sure. about this entire platform. And apart from that, like you're doing a bunch of other stuff. I mean, a little bit more some of the other stuff you you maybe are working on. Uh, well, that that has been the main thing that I've been I've been busy with uh, for for the last uh, last I would say the last four years, and that's also kind of why I went you know kind of disappeared from the planet for a little bit. I literally went into a cave and, and just try to try to figure figure this one out. And the funny thing is, when we started our VC 2016, same time as I left uh, 3D Systems, the whole consensus was to uh, okay, let's um, every six months or every 12 months we'll we'll initiate a new a uh, new startup. But then the very first idea was so exciting. I'm like, shit, this is going to scale like a mother. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to uh, to really focus on um, on, on this uh, this for now. But uh, on on top of that, I do again on, on the consulting side, I do a lot of um, a lot of different different things. And but again, it's more about, you know, people know me from the design part. And a lot of times there's a lot of hesitation. I find if I'm trying to get get something going on with bigger companies because uh, they look at me like well you know so you're gonna just kind of make it pretty I'm like no right. it's it's actually about <laughs> really it's really about changing your culture how are we gonna embed uh, creativity into your workflows and how are we gonna you know the the final product is a very small portion of, uh, of a change management uh, endeavor and that's kind of what a lot of these big companies who are coming into this 3d game uh, fairly late it's exactly the same thing what happens with these engineers. Like you know, they uh, and I've heard this actually many times so that they come to me like, listen, we we bought a machine, but then we return it because it wasn't really uh, we didn't <laughs> we didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of times, this the CEO puts a fist on the table and goes like, listen, hey, uh, let's buy a 3D printer, and then they then buy a 3D printer, and then it kind of goes in the in the corner, and people look at it like, oh, so it's not automatically uh, spitting out uh, magical uh, designs. Like no, there's a there's a whole path to follow. How you're gonna, you know, change the culture in a company? How to get creative? Yeah, I think I think the the mistake I've been on these change management projects before, where they think that somehow they will become innovative because they adopt the 3D printing process or their 3D printer, or yeah. they they turn to 3D printing for spare parts or something. And it's usually it's a it's a total cluster beep uh, yeah. of a project because I, I it doesn't work. And most of the time, also they. They don't go to a uh, you know a specific consultant to ask for an advice. What they do is they go, hey, we want a 3D printer. So where do we go? We have to go to a 3D printing company. So then they call yeah. call a big 3D printing company and buy a machine. But what are these? Uh, what are the 3D printing company doing? Well, they don't they're not advising them on on their change management. They want to just do a transaction as quick as possible. Just right. buy a machine and it'll be fine, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but they have no in, they have no incentive uh, to. Uh, to, I mean, of course, I would love them to keep on ordering material all the time. But again, majority of these companies are not structured for on the bonus of what, what these companies are actually using it for. They're structured mm -hmm. to make money on selling that one machine. And that's it. So in a way, the, the, the problem lies a lot of times inside those big you know, 3D printing companies. That they're not structured in the right way to start coming up with those ideas by themselves. They're just trying to sell machines. Well, I think, I think it's, it's encouraging that AOs and Stratasys have consulting arms uh, in order to like help accelerate the adoption of uh, 3D printing. Yeah, that's uh, uh, starting to starting to happen now. I mean, the same thing in EOS uh, and a bunch of other companies. They're starting to have these uh, departments now, 
but to be perfectly honest, I mean, it is, I mean, and again, no, no disrespect. I mean, I'm glad that they do, but it is still for the benefit of them. They're not going to go of like, course. listen, I have a client that we're going to consult and why don't you go buy our competitors a machine, you know, because it's going to yeah. be better for, for this process that they're going to do. Why would they not? I mean, I mean, why yeah. would they do that? So in a way, then that's why I see this big, uh, big demand for, you know, third party uh, consultants who are, you know, first technology agnostic and also they're not the makers of the, of the systems either. Damn it. That's what I used to do. <laughs> <laughs> given, given all the years you've spent on, on the 3D print side of it or using the printers, what's the, what's been your biggest frustration with them? Well, I mean, kind of what I said, the biggest frustration has been scale. Yeah. So speed, limited amount of materials and price, you know, things are, and ironically, I mean, when, when I started, I looked at it, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, it's just plastic. We'll figure it out. Yeah. It's not going to be $100 a kilo. It's going to be a dollar a kilo. Where are we now? We're still very high on, on the price because of the, 65. the applications yeah. are, 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 are high valued, you know, so in a way, and, and the competition is not, you know, fierce enough yet. Right. So, and, and the amount of, if you compare, and, you know, if, if I would have had the skill to ask the right questions back then and there, I would have realized, you know, this is going to take 20 years, you know, but the mm -hmm. amount of plastic we consume in the 3D printing world is so microscopic when you com compare to other, other areas like injection molding that it would have to astronomically increase the volume, you know, before the, before the pricing uh, comes down. Uh, but at the same time, I cannot print ice cream. I cannot print chocolate. And with chocolate, what I mean is that you cannot print chocolate. You cannot print chocolate in a way that it is uh, edible in the quality that they're making it today. Right. The chocolate company is not going to allow you to come there with, you know, less quality product than what they're selling today. And it also has to be the same price. So these are the kind of, you know, things where, where we're still still running running into problems. And that's, again, one of the reasons why we started 3 dti I'm like, you know what, it's just not, they're not going to make it. It's not going to happen. We have to make it ourselves. Yeah, I think I think what we're seeing interestingly is that the prices have gone down dramatically on desktop systems and open systems. That's why I see a lot of these That's car true. companies try to stimulate uh, open uh, desktop 3D printers because they can throw in whatever material and there's no lock-in from the vendor and there's no lock-in from the material vendor either. So we are seeing a lot of movement there going from prices like 45 a kilo to around 20, 22 a kilo. Whereas yeah, in industrial, true. we're still seeing like, uh, if we're talking US dollars, we're still seeing like 95 to 65 a kilo being your average price. So there is some yeah. movement there. Yeah, but, there, there, is, there, there is some movement, but we still, let's say, let's do a you know cost analysis on a specific midsole for shoe, for example. I mean, if you make yeah. an EVA, TPU, you know, high performance uh, could bounce uh, uh, polyurethanes works. I mean, you know, you're looking at a dollar a kilo. Yeah. You know? So, and then, and it's such a cutthroat industry. I mean, if, if it's 1.5, they're struggling. So mm -hmm. you're not, but hey, so you can't even go for 1 to 1.5. But now you go like, hey, now we have this TPU for 45 bucks a kilo. It's yeah. just not going to work, you know? And even but then, I your performance is less, you know? So it's just, it's far, if you know what I mean. Come to yeah, but I think I think with shoes, I think it could work if you just cut out the whole rest of the value chain. You know, if you make yourself all of a sudden and you don't sell via a retailer, then it doesn't matter. If I was previously only making $20 on a $100 shoe, yeah. um, and now I can make $40 on a $100 shoe by just cutting out all the middlemen, then yeah, it still true. is a viable business model, even though the material and the yield and, and, and that kind of thing is, is, is much, much well, lower. 
Yeah, absolutely right. But then, then, then you also again you have to really not not focus on making the horses run faster, but you're gonna make a new car, and yeah. you have to by by doing that you have to change everything. You gotta yeah. change how you make things, how you're gonna right. distribute it, how you're gonna sell it, how you're gonna store yeah. it, how everything your entire business model needs to change. But I'm more talking about the bigger bigger companies uh, of the footwear industry. I mean they they're still relying on the way they've been making things in Far East uh, for for decades, you know, and they're trying to just push it into that channel. But it's, you know, it's just not. It's kind of challenging. Oh well, I mean, I think, but I think that you know, because they've outsourced everything, it's really tempting for them. It's not like they have to go to the media and say we're going to fire ten thousand people, right? They mm-hmm. they just move away from doing stuff in Vietnam to doing it in Germany. Everybody's going to be yay, you know. So it's, it's yeah. politically much easier. What I do see is that, especially on the the resin front or the the DLP uh, uh, thermoset front. I just I agree with you. You mentioned a little bit the performance isn't there, and especially on flexible materials, we traditionally had a very very weak kind of performing materials in, in the various technologies. And and I think yeah. even to this day, we're coming up with materials that uh, I've tested and, and and I keep hitting and like if we just run it through a barrier uh, a battery of tests that I usually do for shoes, like a lot of these yeah. things just fail. Yeah, true, absolutely right. But it's so makes think, great PR. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 it does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And a great and a great promise. Yeah. Yeah, but no follow yeah. through in the end. Yeah, that's where we are. Well, I'm really really hope you enjoyed that. I, I, I did. I know I did. I, I really like hearing from Yana and his vision on the future and all the really amazing things he's done, and the way he really looks at the industry is very very different than many other people. So I hope uh, that you really enjoyed this today and you really enjoyed the 3D pod today. Spread the word. Tell all your friends. Keep giving us feedback. Uh, my name is Joris Peels. Uh, I'm the editor-in-chief of 3dprint.com. I'm here today with Maxwell Vogue. Thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com. underscore